Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, February 24th, we're studying Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 36. Jesus sends his disciples across the Sea of Galilee while he stays by himself on a mountain to pray. But he doesn't leave his disciples alone for long. He walks to them on the sea. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. Pastor Johnson serves as the pastor at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thanks. Good to be here. So as we get started this morning, Pastor Johnson, get us started with some context. Where are we in Matthew's Gospel? What's going on that'll help us dig into these verses today? Right. So Matthew, we're kind of in this in-between spot with the... uh, with the gospel, we've already finished up uh, Jesus' big Sermon on the Mount, and we've had a, a series of uh, of teaching and miracles and whatnot, but we're not yet to the this critical turning point that's going to come up in a, in a week or so in chapter 16, where Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. So we're kind of, I mean, it's appropriate that we're still, you know, wrapping up the epiphany season, because that's exactly what we're going to get in Matthew chapter 14, is a little bit more full revelation of who Christ is and who he is for us. And uh, so in the immediate context in chapter 14, I would say the one question that really unifies this whole chapter is who is Jesus? Um, And it it may not be totally self-evident right away, but it starts with um, uh, John the Baptist and uh, it kind of does a little bit of a, uh, you know, a little bit of a flashback for John the Baptist because Herod hears about Jesus and he thinks it's John the Baptist, you know, raised from the dead. And then he kind of goes back and in the the text sort of remembers for us how Herod put John the Baptist to death. But what's one of the key things, at least for our purposes, is that Herod mistakes him for being Jesus, which kind of introduces that whole question. Then, well, so who is Jesus? He's clearly not John the Baptist. Although that misunderstanding will come full circle when we get to chapter 16, when Jesus asks the disciples outright, who do people say that I am? But that's, uh, we'll save that for another person. And so, um, so then he, uh, the crowds all come together. And then the next thing is the feeding of the 5,000 and, uh, and the disciples, you know, they're, they're ignorant of, of who Jesus is because they decide to send the crowds away. They don't understand how Jesus is going to reign in his kingdom. And so they, they bring the five loaves and the two fish with them. And, but if you notice, they present them in doubt and skepticism. And so, so Jesus kind of, once again, reorients the disciples to kind of like, you know, think, think his way and understand his reign. Um, and so then likewise today, we finally have, once again, Peter and the disciples confused about who Jesus is and what he's there to do. And once again, Jesus set things straight. I think one of the key things we need to remember, we so easily step into the shoes of the apostles, even though we're, of course, not the apostles, but that 
that uh, they really kind of pave the way for us um, and uh, and help us along in understanding really the nature of who Jesus really is. So, I mean, as you as you're bringing up here a major theme for Matthew 14 that we're we're wanting to look at who is Jesus. You've laid out some of the misunderstandings that are seen there in Matthew chapter 14. What are some of the misunderstandings today that people have on who is Jesus? Sure. No, I almost had forgotten. I, I even put that in my own notes. Uh, it's you know, it's always amazing to me how how popular Jesus is in our culture, but how everybody seems to have kind of like a different version of him. Um you know, because, you know, we're all basically working with the same, you know, biographies of Jesus, the Gospels, but um, you know, either by, um, you know, for all sorts of different reasons, people, people kind of, I think, tailor and adapt Jesus to, uh, you know, to be, to kind of fit with their own. I mean, Jesus gets co-opted, um, you know, by people when they are, you know, when sometimes when they're running for p- political office or even just for political purposes, you know, uh, this is the kind of thing that Jesus would do. Um, but also Jesus ends up turning into, of course, you know, the classic moralistic teacher. He often gets cited in that way. But it's interesting that that people often will kind of drop out the the difficult things uh, for Jesus to say. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, we had in our, our gospel lesson where Jesus, uh, he sort of represents the law in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh and he has this this refrain, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and then he lays down these really difficult words that I almost never hear quoted kind of in by popular culture about how how anger actually counts as murder, how lust is actually counts as adultery, and how he calls us out for our, kind of our lying lives. And, uh, you know, these are the sort of things that Jesus himself says, but nobody really kind of wants to reckon with. And and so it always strikes me that we we sort of play smorgasbord, you know, like a buffet with Jesus. We we go and we pick the parts we like, and we sort of leave the parts that we don't. But that's really not how Jesus reveals himself. And in some ways, we actually see a very um, both a, a merciful Jesus, but also kind of a difficult Jesus. Uh, you know, here in in uh, walking on the water in this whole episode. Mm-hmm. So. Let's go ahead and take a look at that text then and see how Jesus reveals himself to his disciples, to us, and and you get all of him, not just a, a buffet or just the parts you like, but you get all of him here, and I think that's going to prove to be a good thing. So, Matthew chapter 14, beginning at verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. 
Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. That's the text for today, Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 36. So, Pastor Johnson, the scene starts right where the previous scene left off. Jesus has just fed the 5,000. He sends his disciples, excuse me, he sends the crowd away and he sends his disciples on in a boat. What, what do we see here at the beginning of the scene? Well, at the beginning of the scene, um, we see Jesus doing what he had actually told the disciples not to do. But, but that's not because he's, he's contradicting himself. It's because he's already accomplished what he, what he hoped for. If you remember that at the, uh, the beginning of, uh, at the beginning of the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples, they want to send, you know, they want to send the people away to go, you know, wherever they're going to go in order to go get food, because all they can see with their eyes is that there's a lot of people here and there's no grocery store around. And so we're not going to be able to provide food for everybody. Plus it's, you know, economically prohibitive, let's say. And so, but Jesus's whole point in this um, is, you know, amongst other things, to show how the uh, in the kingdom of God, Jesus as their king actually can provide for them more than enough than what they need. And so now it's only after Jesus finally feeds the crowds, only then does he actually do what the disciples had originally asked. Only then does he actually dismiss them. Um, so he sends the disciples on on their way to go to the other side. He he kind of uh, takes care of dismissing the crowds, um, and uh, and now it's kind of their turn. But I think it's interesting. You know, Matthew flips back and forth oftentimes between like all the crowds and then sort of the smaller audience of the apostles or the disciples themselves. And uh, and so that we have that shift going on here again, because whereas Jesus didn't really explicitly teach the uh, the crowds exactly who he was, here's an opportunity specifically for the apostles where Jesus will reveal himself to them. Hmm. Now, I also think, well, did you have a follow-up? Because I do want to make sure I get something said about this versus calming the storm before we get too far into this. Well, before before we go too far, one thing, you know, you I think you're right to pick out the difference in audience as as important. And we've seen that elsewhere. In the Sermon on the Mount, the audience is primarily the disciples and the crowds are, are left behind. They're they're mm-hmm. overhearing, maybe, right? Um, in chapter 13, the the discourse with all the parables, the knowing who Jesus is talking to, is he talking to just his disciples or the crowds as well? That's that's going to be a, a key thing. And so here, uh, applying that same thinking, right, Jesus is going to reveal some of the secrets of the, of the kingdom, to use that language for 13, now to his disciples by themselves in the absence of the crowd. Uh, before, and I, I don't want to get too far away from this either, before he does that, he's there all by himself praying, which isn't really a right. thing that we've seen a lot in Matthew, and it's probably worth a bit of a comment as well. So go ahead, Pastor Johnson. Right. You know, it struck me too, and although I don't think it it doesn't continue thematically um, very much in all this, or at least if it, if it does, I didn't notice it. But I think it is at least worth pausing to note that 
the very thing which Jesus invites us to do as his own disciples, like he does in, uh, in the Lord's Prayer, he himself does. I mean, Jesus himself is a man of prayer. And I don't mean prayer in the kind of broad, nihilistic sense that we usually have in our culture where, you know, you know, being of, you know, when people say like, for instance, thoughts and prayers, no offense to anybody, but oftentimes what they, they, they don't really mean that they're actually going to pray for you. But here, Jesus himself takes the time by himself to speak with his own heavenly father. And, um, you know, as we, not only is he encouraged and taught us to do the same thing, but now he also exemplifies the same thing for ourselves. I mean, you know, in, in one way, if we see that if the son of God himself takes the time to talk, speak to his father, how much more then should we also be encouraged to do the same thing? I mean, not just certainly disciplined, but also encouraged to, because it's, I mean, <laughs> I don't know about you, but, uh, well, you just said this last week was crazy for you. And, uh, frankly, um, the last couple of weeks, even, uh, leading up here to Lent is, have been, uh, have just been jam packed. And, uh, it, I'm often reminded of Luther's little quip about, uh, how the busier he became, the more he had to take time out in order to pray. I think we'd all do well to be reminded of that. That uh, that it causes us to be more dependent upon our Father, not less dependent upon Him. When uh, when mm. kind of the world goes crazy, mm. right? And Jesus certainly. I mean, it, it, as you said, if the Son of God Himself does this, then how much more should we be encouraged to do that? As as those whom He invites also to say, "Our Father," right? We get to speak right. the same same way as Jesus does. So, so with that, then, Pastor Johnson, I think you wanted to, as we as we move into this text more, to do a, a bit of distinction, differentiate, make sure we keep this account straight from when Jesus calms the storm in Matthew chapter 8. Right, and I'll point it out as we get to the further details, but I'll even admit that I sometimes, you know, conflate these two things in my mind because they are remarkably similar. You know, they both involve a boat and they involve something kind of like a storm um, and something miraculous, but that's about where they stop here. Um, of course, the, the first and most obvious one is Jesus, you know, in this episode, Jesus actually stays behind in the uh, the first episode with Jesus calming the storm. He's actually in the boat along with them. Um, so we just need to make sure that we're we're clear that these two things, these are not just, these are not photocopies of each other. And we should also resist the um, kind of the easy, um, I don't know what you want to what you want to call it. Sort of the the classic kind of Sunday school explanation of these, like, hey, these these both Jesus is doing miracles and he proves that he's really powerful. Well, that may be true, but if that's where we stop, then we really miss what is unique about both Jesus walking on the water and calming the storm, and especially with Jesus walking on water. I want to lead us through a very careful reading of it because it's really in the details that you really see the theology come out of all this. Hmm. Okay, so take us through some of those details. Jesus has has dismissed the crowds. His disciples he's sent on ahead of him, and we we get a description a bit of their trip in verse twenty four. So help us help us through some of those details in a close reading of this. Right. So with verse twenty four, you notice it it says that. You know, by this time, the boat was a long way from the land, um, you know, probably maybe even a couple of miles, possibly. I mean, the Sea of Galilee is a really big lake, basically. Um, 
and it says they were beaten by, uh, uh, by the waves and the wind was against them, but that doesn't mean they weren't actually making progress. They're not necessarily caught in a storm. This is just, you know, difficult going. And, and it says the fourth watch of the night is the very last night. So they've been at this for a while. Um, so you can probably imagine they're tired and you can put yourselves in their, in their shoes. But Jesus comes, he comes to them walking on the sea. And that's really important that he, he comes to them, uh, which, which we're going to see uh, kind of repeated later on in, uh, in Peter's statements. Now, now, certainly this is, this is a miracle. There's no doubt about it. You know, people don't normally walk on water unless it's frozen, which happens a lot here in Minnesota. Uh, but, but this is, this is indeed a supernatural miracle, but that's not really the main point though. Um, the primary focus is that here Christ is drawing near. He's drawing near to uh, to his disciples. Uh, he came near to them walking on the sea. Now the disciples' re- response, though, is uh, is what's is what's surprising at first. Um, that even as he he's coming to them, they're confused about who he is. Did you notice that they don't know who he is? Who, what his real identity is. They think he's an apparition, a ghost. And so, so naturally they cry out in fear. So you've got these two things, identity and fear go hand in hand. They, if they don't know who Jesus is, they will be afraid. Okay. And so, um, so then that's of course, uh, Jesus responds to exactly those two things. First thing he says is take heart. In other words, um, and then he'll say it again. He'll say, don't be afraid or even stop being afraid. And what's in the middle, though, you notice it's kind of like a little uh, cookie sandwich there. You got take heart, don't be afraid. But what's in the middle? It's who Jesus is. He just says simply, it is I. It is I. Now, there, there's probably overtones here of uh, of the divine name Yahweh going on here. But I'm not sure how much to make of all that. But at the very least, at the very least, Jesus is basically saying by just identifying, pointing to himself, hey, it's me, uh, he's calling upon them to, re- to acknowledge who he has already revealed himself to be in all the, uh, you know, the chapters leading up to it. In other words, hey, it's me. You know, it's your master, your Lord, the one who has taught you, the one who has has, has healed the masses, the one who has called you uh, out of your vocations to be my own disciples. It's me. And so Jesus places his own identity as the central, you might say, feature of why they would not be afraid. And so if they know who he is, they won't be afraid. But failing to recognize who he is is actually what goes along with their fear. Do you see it? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I, I appreciate how you, you brought out there is a there is a an an overtone there of the divine name, I am who I am, right? There in verse 27. Right. But at the same time, I, I appreciate the point that you made about this isn't just Jesus just sort of showing off, look at me, I can walk on water, some sort of like party trick or or even, and, and I don't mean to be crass, but, but, or just to the effect of like, he's showing how powerful he really is that, that he can walk on the water. There's, there's more to it than that. And I, I think I would, I would go to what the disciples say in the fact that they think it's a ghost. Now, now a ghost would right. be a spirit, someone without a body. 
See, Jesus doesn't come to you as a, as a ghost, as a spirit, someone without a body. He comes to you in the real human flesh, in your human flesh. And so, it, I mean, again, how, who is Jesus and how does he come to you? These, these questions, it, it's not just in the, the bare divine nature that would frighten the living daylights out of us, but he comes to us as a man, as, as one of us, not as a ghost, but as a human being like you and me. And I, I think that, that he's coming to draw near the comfort of, of the Son of God in human flesh, that's, that's the real thrust of this, not just, and again, like you said, he is powerful. He is the God of the Old Testament who has control over wind and waves, but, but he's come as a man to save you, to take away your fear. Is, is that right. what you're driving at? Well, I'm not sure that's exactly yet what I was driving at, but I mean, I'm happy to ride that train with you because I think it's exactly right. I mean, the incarnation of Christ, uh, you know, is is an undercurrent in all of this. I mean, it very much reminds me of Jesus's experience in the upper room right after he's been raised from the dead. Do you recall this? That, um, you know, they, he, he walks he walks through the door, right, which is once, enough, once again a, a thing that normal human beings can't do. But then what does he say? You know, they're all terrified. He says, don't be afraid. In fact, it's the exact same phrase there in John chapter 20 as it is here in Matthew chapter 14. Don't be afraid. Twice he says it. He says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Stop being afraid. Um, and, uh, and what does he do? You know, to, to your point about the comfort of the incarnation. Not just that he's like some kind of of deity who has now triumphed over death and hell, which is 100% true, but then he offers his hands, right, mm. so that they can touch him and see and understand that this is not this is not an apparition of the Jesus who walked and talked and spoke and healed and and lived with them, but this is the real deal, 100% in the flesh as he was before, but now he's raised from the dead. And um, so, yeah, the, the, the ink, this is all shot through with the incarnation. And frankly, if we were, you know, kind of like, uh, uh, well, I, I was going to say Greek dualist, but that, I don't know. If, I don't know if the audience is interested in hearing about any of that. But if we were, if we, we aren't just interested in a disembodied Jesus, but this is the one who has come to us in the flesh. That's the one who reveals himself. And that's the one who comforts us. Mm-hmm. So th- that's what Jesus is is getting at here, and in, in, I mean, is that why he? It, it seems still maybe odd, you know. Why why didn't he just get in the boat with them? Why did he choose this way to reveal? Is what what is he intending to communicate about himself? All of this and 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 what else, Pastor Johnson? Well, I would probably say that um, he is. Well, I mean, what else? <laughs> There's a million things. What else? <laughs> that that he is the one who is indeed coming to them. And I think as we're going to see with Peter's response, what also becomes clear is that um, he has even come to save and to show mercy to those who fear. Uh, that That in other words, he's not looking for you know, he's not picking out all the best A students, right? Um, you know, he he hasn't he hasn't set up an obstacle course for the disciples so that well, if they finish it, then he's going to be super proud of them. But that this is really, um, you know, to throw the the theological term out, this is this is monergism. This is this is all about Jesus doing the work 
not the disciples finding him, if that makes mm. sense. So, yeah. and I think we're going to see that kind of in spades then with Peter next. So we got two minutes here on this side of the break. Maybe before we get into what Peter does, let, let's try it this way. What what would the faithful response have been to verse 27? Because I don't think you're going to say it's what Peter Peter was. Just to, <laughs> no, to, no, it's... What would it have looked yeah, like, a faithful response to what Jesus does in verse 27? Well, you, that's a good question. I mean, I suppose it would, um, it, we would just basically jump down to verse 33 in a way that they would, um, they would lift up their voices in joy and they would welcome him. I mean, in a way it would almost be Palm Sunday, but with more understanding, <laughs> you know, that they, they would, uh, they would say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord or something along those lines where they would actually welcome him into the boat with, uh, with joy and being heartened. In other words, that they would, they would do the very things that, uh, that Jesus actually says that they would, they would stop being afraid and that their hearts would be lifted, uh, rather than being terrified. Hmm. And so, or maybe Maybe even uh, to thinking back to John, um, if you remember in chapter 21, when they're out on uh, with the, the miraculous catch of fish and they don't understand it's Jesus on the shore yet, um, the, the simple response, I think, from uh, I think it's from James and John is it's the Lord. And Peter jumps out of the boat to swim to him. It's the Lord. Maybe that would have just been it simply if they were to say it's the Lord. Mm. The response of faith, recognizing who it is that has come to them, God in the flesh, here to save them. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFO. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. On this Monday, February 24th, we're studying Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 36, with Pastor Jeremiah Johnson of Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, prior to the break, we were looking at what a faithful response to Jesus' statement, it is I, do not be afraid, might have looked like, that they would have welcomed him into the boat, almost that you just skip down to verse 33 of the text. Of course, the text doesn't skip down that far, First, we hear from our good friend, Peter. <laughs> so as he is, is often wont to do, he, he starts talking. So what, what is Peter's response to, to Jesus walking on the water? Right. Impetuous Peter at his best. So his response is, unfortunately, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Which, you know, we want to give Peter every benefit of the doubt. And and so here's the, the positive side so that we just don't end up like shaking, wagging our finger at Peter and saying, tisk, tisk. Peter's really where we enter into 
I mean, if, if I'm honest about it, my response is much often much more like Peter's. And um, to let a little bit of the cat out of the bag, what we see the good news in all this is not how Peter responds, but how Jesus responds to Peter. And the short of it is mercy. And so we don't need to be afraid. You know, we don't need to, uh, to uh, uh, you know, pin Peter to the wall here. Uh, we can actually be honest about the fact of how often we are just like him. And so thinking that way, let's kind of go forward with his, uh, his really unhelpful answer. So first of all, he says, Lord, if it is you. And, you know, this does not seem like it's a question coming out of faith, but really coming out of doubt. You know, if it is you. In fact, it's a little bit troubling um, because I think it sounds an awful lot like uh, Satan's response in, uh, you know, in the temptation of Jesus, if you are the son of God. And so kind of in the worst case scenario, it's basically Peter putting Jesus to the test. Like, hey, Jesus, prove it, right? <laughs> if it's really you, do this because I, because I don't believe it yet. I mean, that's, that's kind of what you have to fill the blanks in with. Um, so he says, okay, here's the test. Command me to come to you on the water. Now, this is interesting because he uses uh, very similar terminology as Jesus, as we saw describing Jesus. Come, uh, you know, he came to them. And now Peter says, um, command me to come to you. And so, in other words, now he's supposed to actually walk on water. Um, so... Now, I mean, at least the one good thing we can say about Peter is, is that if he's going to address anybody, I mean, at least he's addressing Jesus. So we can maybe give him like a, a small bit of credit, uh, small bit of credit in that. But here's the real key thing: is that Jesus says, Jesus says, "It is I." He says, "Take heart." He says, "Do not be afraid." But especially when he says, "It is I," think about this. Peter says, well, if it's you, um, he hasn't listened to Jesus's word. He has doubted Jesus's word, which is never a position that anybody wants to be in in the Gospels, or for that matter, any of us want to be in. I mean, we saw that in Genesis 3, right? This is when, when Adam and Eve, their, their word from God, what do they do? They doubt it. Doesn't turn out well for them. So hmm. thankfully, uh, Jesus is merciful. Hmm, so sure. Jesus plays along, right? Oh, did you want to, did you want well, to follow up with anything just, of that? Yeah, just to say, I mean, I don't know. I, I appreciate what you're saying about there's certainly a similarity, I think, to the temptation mm -hmm. that Satan offers Jesus. I don't know that that in this text we see Peter speaking for Satan, as for example, we will oh, no, in no, a few no. chapters, right? Yeah. Right, right. But no, I'm, but, I'm but glad to you recognize said that I don't... yeah. Go ahead. I, I don't want to give anybody the impression like this is the same thing. It's just reminiscent of, um, you know, it's the kind of thing you don't really want to find yourself saying. But I'm not. I'm not promoting proposing that that you know, like Peter is has become the mouthpiece of Satan or something like that at this point. So right, right. But the the point stands. Jesus has said, "It is I." Peter has not believed that, at least not fully. Right. He's not fully mm -hmm. recognized, not fully believed that the man standing in front of him on the water is Jesus, his Lord, the one who is drawing near to them. And so he, there is, there's doubt. 
there in Peter's words. Right. And that's that's the point that we want to drive home is that. So, mm-hmm. I mean, in other words, to like to get out of the boat with Jesus, which sometimes I think it's used in a positive sense by Christians. <sighs> right. That, you know, that we would ju- Lord. I mean, it doesn't seem that Peter standing as a terribly positive example here in the <laughs> in the getting out of the boat. No, no. In fact, you're probably familiar that there is a uh, there, there's a Christ, a well-meaning Christian book called "If You Want to Walk on Water, You Got to Get Out of the Boat," which unfortunately assumes that Peter's action of getting out of the boat was actually a good one. And and here we find really quite the opposite when we read the text a little bit more carefully. You know, getting out of the boat is not is not what's given us as the example to do. It's to confess Jesus. That's really what's given the example. It's to believe Jesus's word. So it's a, it's a bit of a confused, or it's, it's a metaphor that has become confused. Mm-hmm. So, but Jesus is, is gracious and merciful here. And so even with Peter offering this, if, if you want to call it a, a test of Jesus, Jesus agrees to it. And he tells, right. he tells Peter, come, I mean, what's, what's going on here in, in now as the interaction continues? Right. So he says, come. Uh, same exact word where Jesus came and then Peter says, you know, if if it's you, command me to come. And so it says Peter got out of the boat and he walked out of the water and came to Jesus. So he did the same thing, you know, basically same thing that Jesus did. Uh, he walks on the water. He comes to uh, comes to Jesus. Um, but the contrast, though, is uh, Jesus sees, uh, I should say, they saw Jesus. But now you notice what happens when Peter actually walks. He doesn't see Jesus. You notice what it says. It's kind of a strange thing because you don't think about usually seeing the wind. I'm I'm guessing it probably means something like he saw the effect of the wind. He saw the, uh, you know, the water, uh, you know, the waves or or pushing the boat or whatever it might have been. But it says when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, "Lord, save me!" And so he uh, he's looking; he's got his eyes in the wrong place. He's looking at the wind. He's looking at the very thing which would cause him doubt. He's not looking at Jesus. That's the uh, that's the problem. But once again, I mean, maybe to give Peter at least a little bit of credit, so to speak. Um, you know, he doesn't say, Lord, save me. I mean, he knows that the only hope he has, you know, as he's literally drowning is, uh, is Christ. And so it, it always kind of reminds me of that, uh, the phrase by, what was it? The centurion, you know, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. There is really a paradox. I think that we, as, uh, as Christians can really grasp onto here because, I mean, you know, if we all took a poll, how many of us could ever say that we've never experienced periods of doubt in our lives as Christians? I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't raise my hand for that one. I doubt, I doubt anybody could. And so, in in this way, you know, the Lord has at least given us Peter in an utter, utterly relatable um, individual here. That that there's this great paradox where he does at least know enough to look to Jesus and to cry out to Him. Uh, but at the same time, he also doesn't fully trust Jesus's words uh, either. He's this great—he's this great mixture, or I mean, <laughs> or as we usually talk about it, uh, as Lutherans, saint and sinner. Um, so, so uh, he says, "Lord, save me," and uh, 
But he does, I think, interestingly, rightly identify Jesus's proper role. We have this all the way back in Matthew 121. He's called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. In fact, we'll get that same word again at the very end of the text, too. Yeah, Peter Peter certainly does serve as a wonderful example for us as Christians in, in multiple ways. And I appreciate you bringing out that prayer from, from I think it's it's in Mark, where, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And and certainly we see that in Peter. It, it's striking in both ways. And, and that he does cry out in faith to Jesus when he's sinking, that was exactly the right thing to do. There There is that faith being evident. But the fact that he's in that position in the first place is is evidence of his unbelief, and and I think right. so. So help me, help me, and make sure I'm I'm picturing this in my mind right. Now you don't get like distances exactly here, but Jesus has has come quite a ways, and whether he walked the whole way or, or not, right? He's they're quite a ways into the into the Sea of Galilee that he's walked on, and he's come to them. So he's he's close enough that they're talking to each other, right? He's on the water there in the mm-hmm. boat. Peter gets out of the boat and walks at least a certain distance. Again, you don't know how far, but he's he's walked a certain distance. But the text says that that Peter came to Jesus. So mm-hmm. should should we picture that Peter in his walking from the boat to Jesus actually made it to Jesus and that's where he sinks is I mean I like he's right next to Jesus? I don't right. have you ever thought about it, that, it, Pastor Johnson? I, I mean, that's that's how I, I've pictured it. And I, I think it makes the picture all that much starker if that's true. Right. I think the verse that really seems to hint at that is verse 31 that says Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. Now, granted, it's an argument from silence, but it doesn't say that Jesus like walked over to him, reached out his hand, but it just says he reached out his hand and took hold of him, which seems to imply that he's practically right next to him, that Jesus can simply reach out and uh, and take a hold of him. Yeah, so I, what does that say that he, uh, you know, maybe this only underscores this great dichotomy all the more that on the one hand, you know, Peter does listen to the command of Jesus uh, enough where he, he gets near to him. But even then, uh, you know, it's not like uh, you know he doesn't come you know over to Jesus, give him a high five, and just walk back with him. I mean, he still needs you know even even what little walking he does, he still needs to be saved in the midst of. And um, here's one of, here's a potential tangent we can go off on. I mean, you know, I don't know if somebody will accuse me of uh, of taking this overly metaphorically, but it sure seems to be a nice picture of kind of our ongoing sanctified life. Um, if you follow me, what I mean is that I mean here the the first first things first. Christ walks to the disciples. He comes to them. They don't come to him, and that's in many ways the perfect image of our justification. Christ comes to us. It's not the other way around. But then, as we learn to walk in the steps of Christ, you know, kind of a la um, you know Galatians five, being in step with the Spirit, fruit of the Spirit, and such. Um, we learn to walk um, as Christ actually leads us. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that this is what this text is exactly saying, but I am seeing kind of a, maybe perhaps an echo or at least a similarity in it. But even, even as we walk in step with the Spirit, even as we walk that newly sanctified life, you know, 
we're still constantly having to be rescued by Jesus. He constantly has to reach out his hand and, uh, and pull us from the water. And so, so I don't know if that sounds like overly allegorizing, but at least it seems to me to be a, uh, you know, kind of a, at least a similar image that's being portrayed here. So that even, even in our justification, as we are there right with Christ, he's still grabbing us and, and saving us from drowning all the time. Even, even as, is that the picture? Yeah. Yeah. If I can expand on that a little bit more, in other words, what we don't want to get the impression of is that our Christian life is not this matter of a, uh, like a relay race where like Jesus brings the, uh, you know, hands the baton off to us. And now it's our job to go and keep on running with it. Um, you know, we, we never, we never actually get away from Christ. The, uh, the more we walk in Christ, actually, the, the more he, uh, we can also clearly see that he continually needs to, to, to rescue and hold us up or, um, perhaps put it, you know, theologically and, and shortly, um, sanctification is daily returning to our justification. Mm-hmm. And we need Christ to get in the boat with us, not, not to right, get out right. and try to do it on our own. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, so once again, this is always the problem with a little bit of allegorizing here is that, you know, that's, that's not exactly what this passage is teaching. I'm only seeing a similarity in terms of the systematics of the rest of the New Testament. But, um, and so you don't want to, uh, you don't want to take it too far because eventually it's going to break down, but sure. uh, Sure. Sure. So to get back to the text then, right. Get back to the text, right. So, so (laughs) Jesus has reached out his hand, he's grabbed Peter and then he talks to Peter. What does he say to Peter and why? Oh, this is, and this is, it's both merciful um, but also in some ways a little, it's hard to hear, but ultimately merciful, you might say. Um, he says, uh, where I lost my place here. Oh, he reached out his hand, took hold of him saying, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, see, this is the dichotomy expressed perfectly. He doesn't say, you know, oh, you of little, uh, you little, little faith, I'm casting you into Hades. <laughs> he says, oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? I mean, so there's no doubt, you know, there's no doubt that there is doubt here. You know, Jesus himself identifies it. Um, but he doesn't say, oh, you have no faith. He says, oh, you have little faith. In other words, he acknowledges the fact that there is indeed this trust in Christ that we kind of saw already exemplified in the fact that he calls out to Jesus and he actually, um, you know, and that he looks to him for salvation but it's it's not you might say a, a faith fully grown. It's one that's ultimately deficient, um, but not that it's absent though. And so, but I think the real the real God, the good kind of gospel kernel to all of this is that is if we keep on seeing ourselves as Peter as the one that is torn between faith and doubt, sort of continuously. This is nothing but beautiful news to us that on the one hand, yes, Christ indeed does rightfully um, diagnose our condition, that we are not as, you know, that we do not believe as we should. We do not always take Jesus's words, um, you know, at face value, but, but he says, you know, he reaches out to us and even us, even me of little faith, Jesus does not turn away. Because what did it say? It says when they got into the boat, he doesn't like leave Peter like, hey, you have a little faith. <laughs> See you later. You know, have a good time trying to swim, right? He doesn't leave him to himself. They both get into the boat because once Jesus has his hand, 
he, uh, you know, you can almost imagine once again, it's imagining, but Jesus helping Peter into the boat, he wouldn't have made it back into the boat without Jesus actually taking hold of him. So once so, in the boat, then it says the wind ceased. And there's one of those places where, where maybe there's a bit of a, it seems an overlap between this and Matthew eight, the calming of the storm. So it wasn't a storm per se, but it was windy and that stops. And then the scene in the boat is just astounding. It says they, right. they worship Jesus and they make quite the confession of who he is. Here's that question. Come back. And, and here's the answer. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The, the question we started off with, who is Jesus? And the disciples say it rightly. Now, of course, you always have to, it's always clear that the disciples don't fully know what they're saying, though. But it doesn't change it from the fact that it is indeed a, a proper confession. They worship him, which, of course, you know, it, as any um, you know, as any first century Jew would know, um, really belongs only to God alone. So they already confess his divinity in doing that. But also they call him the son of God. Now, I think that we take that for granted. But if you track down who has been called the son of God and by whom he has been called the son of God in the book of Matthew, this is not a, a title that gets thrown around a lot. It's always significant. And it's curiously, it gets used the first two times um, by Satan in Matthew chapter four uh, in his temptation, but also then by the demons in Matthew chapter eight. But now that doesn't mean, you know, that doesn't mean they're professing a saving, saving faith, but it's interesting. It's almost like, like, uh, like the demons all, they already know all the answers, even if that's not going to save them. (laughs) But I mean, Mm -hmm. in, in one, in one sense, they are, I'm hesitant to say it this way, but they are, they at least do provide accurate answers in this regard, uh, that he is indeed the son of God. They got, they got it right. They, they know in some ways better than us, but they don't necessarily fear love and trust in him above all things. But then later on, um, we have, um, you know, right after this, we have Peter confessing when Jesus asks this question explicitly, who do the people say that I am? And then who do you say that I am? Peter's response, even though it becomes clear that he doesn't understand the import of it, he says, you are uh, Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus affirms that. In other words, it's exactly the right confession. But little by little, Jesus is revealing what exactly that means. It's not enough just to have you know, sort of the, the right answer, you know, uh, you got to sort of show your work as well. And, um, and then it gets really interesting, I think, when Jesus is on the cross, because that's when it gets used the most. Ironically, it gets used in his trial um, as an accusation against him. And then as the people are passing by and making mocking him, they say, oh, yeah, yeah, if you're the son of God, get yourself down, right? But then of all people, it's not it's not one of the disciples. It's the centurion who actually claims him as the son of God um, at the very end. Because after Jesus dies and, uh, and we see the, uh, you know, the, the, the resurrection and, and the earthquake and all those other signs, the centurion says, truly, this man was the son of God. Hmm. And so now I don't know how much the centurion understood, but the point is, is that when, when we have this title, it is meaningful even when those who speak it are confused about what it means. And so, you know, so the disciples may not get it, but they're beginning to get it. 
what it means for him to be the son of God, the savior. And, uh, and of course, here they see him as the son of God, their savior, most here on the cross as he suffers and dies for their sins. Hmm. You know, as and, he and that's, saves well, them. That's the, that's the point of, of, of what you're drawing there, right? Is that we can't know, we can't know either fully what it means for Jesus to be the son of God until we trace that all the way there to the cross. And confess exactly. it there at the cross, because if if we can't confess it at the cross, then then all of these other confessions haven't meant anything for us. It it has to be mm-hmm. true there at the cross finally, or these other confessions don't really do what Jesus came to do, which, as you said, is to save us from from our sins. Right. Right. the The cross is where it 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 all comes to a. Uh, uh, it all comes to a center and a pinnacle all at the same time. And that's where all, all of his titles um, coalesce. And, um, and even though there's so much confusion about it, that's what really the whole rest of the New Testament uh, in, in the preaching of the church really is. I mean, in a way, we only really have one message, as Paul says. And he said it just a couple of weeks ago. I uh, determined to know nothing among you, he says to the Corinthians, except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, Paul got up there every single Sunday and says, Jesus died on the cross, amen. (laughs) But that everything in Christianity, everything is an extension or an outpouring of the cross, either leads to the cross or comes, flows out of the cross. And so that's where we're all going. And, and, uh, and I think that little word save, I keep, uh, you know, you know, when he says, Lord, save me, you know, that's why he's on the cross. And that's what actually connects him to the cross. That, that in a way that, that image of Christ, um, reaching down and pulling Peter out of the water, that really is Christ doing the cross to Peter. I mean, you know, in a typological sense, you, you might say. Hmm. Pastor Johnson, we've got just under three minutes here left on the morning we still have a couple of verses here on the healing of of those who are sick on the other shore. Um, you can you can hit that if you want, or you can give us a summary of, of the text for today. Wrap things up for us as we as we prepare to close. Let's do a little bit of each. I think just very briefly um, with the the healing of those in Gennesaret. What we have is more of uh, Jesus's activity as the King, you know, and demonstrating how his reign is manifest. And so, of course, he's he's kind of turning back the tide of the fall, and um, and it says at the very end, as many as touched it were made well. Actually, the the word for well, which which is a fine translation, I don't want to pick pick uh, make bones with it, but there's a little bit of a double entendre there uh, because the 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 word to be well comes from the same root as to save, and I don't think they're as far apart as we usually think. Um, so they, uh, so what he's still continuing to do, it, it creates a continuity with what he's done for Peter, and that is really to save him, but also what he's doing with all these people. Ultimately, he has come. This is part and parcel of his act of salvation. In other words, these these healings are not somehow, you know, sort of disconnected side gigs for Jesus. He's not just doing this on, uh, you know, <laughs> as a side hustle. He's, uh, this is all part of what it means for him to come as a savior, as the, as the very son of God himself. 
Um, but I think that the question this really ends up leaving us with then, um, well, is if it, it prompts, you know, especially in the literally in the midst of the of the lake, whether or not you know, well, can Peter be saved? Um, you know, what if I find myself like Peter? Um, you know, struggling, doubting, not being sure. You know, we all have you know our, our misgivings. Will be, will I be cast aside by my Savior? Or will I be pulled out of the water? And I think that's where the mercy of Christ in this text really becomes a mercy for us. Because if Jesus has mercy and saves Peter, this little faith guy, then he surely will have mercy on me as well. In fact, I'd like to wrap up with a, uh, a quote from, uh, from Dr. Jeff Gibbs. I think that really puts it all together nicely. He says, was there ever a master more patient and gracious than this Jesus, whose power and authority go out to all who call upon him in, in their need, even when they themselves have created uh, their fatal situation of need? And in other words, Peter's problem was a problem of his own creation, and so are ours. But that doesn't, that doesn't mean Jesus just leaves us to ourselves and says, well, you made your bed, now you get to lay in it. Even from these things, he actually saves us, which is, well, at least for my part, that's, um, that's a beautiful thing. Pastor Jeremiah Johnson is the pastor at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota, helping us this morning with Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 36. Pastor Johnson, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Tim. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.